Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Lainey from the library marketing team. Um, we are so glad to have you and all of our podcast episodes are amazing, but this one is extra special to me and I am joined by Emily Griffin, who is an executive editor at Harper. She's been on the podcast before, not her first rodeo, but um, she's here and we are going to interview uh, this stellar debut novelist, Elizabeth Wetmore, about her new upcoming book, Valentine. It comes out in April of 2020, and we are so excited for this. So I'm going to pass it to Emily to give a little intro on the book. Hi, everyone. Valentine starts on February 14th, 1976 in Odessa, Texas, and opens with a shocking act of violence and then looks at the reverberations throughout the small town and specifically through the eyes of the women in the town. Um, it's an unbelievable debut told through five voices, um, all female, and I could not put it down. It is gripping. The writing is beautiful. Uh, Elizabeth Wetmore has created these characters that are so real and a plot that is just incredibly uh, compelling, and I'm thrilled to have her here. Um, Elizabeth, who goes by Beth, we'll be calling her that today, is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, who's been published in a fantastic number of literary journals. She has She's the recipient of a fellowship from the NEA, as well as McDowell. She was a Rona Jaffe Scholar in Fiction in Breadloaf, and she's been a writer in residence at Hedgebrook. She is a native of Odessa, Texas, and she lives and works in Chicago with her family. Hi, Beth. Hi. So um, I know that one of the things people like to hear about is the origin story for the book. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how the book came about, and then I can uh, tell listeners how the book uh, came to me and uh, why I was so excited to publish it. Okay. Um, well, first, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so Valentine began as a short story that I just couldn't quite leave alone. And I was thinking a little bit about um, our, our, our meeting recently with uh, Leah and Jane. And one of the things that Leah said to me when I was telling her my own story about leaving Texas, you know, when I was very young and sort of leaving quickly with very little money. And she said to me, you know, and you never looked back. And I laughed and I said, yeah, you know, I never looked back. And after we hung up, I thought that's that was not that was not genuine. And the truth is, is that I never stopped looking back, you know, and mm -hmm. I think Valentine is the, uh, is the product of that. Um, so it began as a short story and, um, you know, I, 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 I couldn't quite stop playing with it, you know? Um, and so, um, and then I took it through, uh, the, the book actually, the, the original, the sort of the first draft of the book, um, actually was began in, 
on Valentine's Day, 1976, and it actually went to 1987. Mm-hmm. So the book spanned um, 11 years, um, and and was I, I imagined it as this kind of epic, you know, sort of. Um, you know, sort of sweeping novel, you know. Um, and in retrospect, I realize uh, that was misplaced from the beginning because the truth is, is that I, I do tend to look at things in very compressed ways, you know. So I feel like the short story form is probably more natural to me than the novel form. Um, and so, um, you know, the good news is I have tons of material for the next book. Um, but I- <laughs> So that's good. Um, but uh, yeah, so I just kept coming back to it and and I kept asking myself, you know, what happens next? What happens next? The characters were very clear to me pretty early, although some of them were a surprise. Um, Mrs. Shepard was a surprise to me. I originally imagined her as the the woman across the street who occasionally like helped out you know, delivering an important piece of information and, and, and taking over childcare. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. um, she became a much bigger character. Um, but Mary Rose, um, was clear to me from the beginning and her voice was really clear to me from the beginning. And so, you know, I just, uh, kind of kept, kind of kept moving forward. And, and once I made the decision that this would happen in a, in a pretty compressed, you know, um, period of time, about six months, I guess, you know, um, it kind of went from there. So, yeah. And, I, and, and there were, I mean, this, this book has been through so many drafts, you know, um, there were, Emily knows this, um, <laughs> some of this, um, you know, it, I had originally, I had the points of view of several men in there, you know, and those, those points of view fell out. Um, so, yeah. Well, I think, Obviously, uh, we're all the better for it, for the shaping of this book that you've done and for the fact that you've given yourself um, all this material for a future novel. (laughs) Um, I just, um, taking it back a little bit, wanted to talk a little bit about how Valentine made its way to my desk. I published an absolutely brilliant debut novel in 2017 that some of you listening may remember, Sycamore by Bryn Chancellor. I was lucky enough last summer to get an email from Bryn saying, my dear friend Beth has written a beautiful novel and uh, her agent is going to be submitting it to you. And so I was very lucky to have that heads up. I was actually on vacation, but I knew it would be coming in right when I got back. And so I was able to clear my desk and read Valentine right away. And it was every bit as good as Bryn promised. Um, I know she had read it in a couple different uh, incarnations. And the five characters that have come to define the book uh, by the time it made its way to my desk are um, two very young women and one older woman, and then two sort of 20 to 30-something women as well. And each of them is so incredibly distinct and memorable. Um, Our sales specialist, Kate McCune, who's written a beautiful letter for the back of the ARE, has compared the youngest girl, Deborah Ann Pierce, to Scout Finch, which I think is a absolutely deserved comparison, and yet she's completely her own person. Each of these characters stay with you. Um, Glory, who is the victim of the brutal attack at the beginning, is a victim. It, there's no other way around it. She, The book is about her reckoning and her healing, her path toward healing, um, 
on many levels, and yet she's so many other things. Um, and I think that humanity that you're able to find in these characters and also have a few real showdowns, real Texas showdowns, but with women at the center is pretty amazing. Um, I know that you had said that one of your kind of aims, Beth, was to, you know, write a Cormac McCarthy novel with women at the center. And uh, you've pulled that off uh, beautifully. Because I had a heads up from my wonderful author scout, Bryn Chancellor, I was able to read the book right away. We were able to make a preemptive offer and take Valentine off the table. Beth uh, put her faith in us, which we cannot thank her enough for. Um, And we went through a few rounds of edits that um, really were probably lighter than I do with most books because the book came to me so fully formed. But um, we really looked at the language and the line level and trying to work out a few plot things that just needed a little bit of massaging, explanation, um, tightening. But truly, um, this was a light edit. And once we got it into production and it was ready to share with my colleagues, uh, that's when a lot of the magic started happening here. So I can speak for the sales side because it as soon as we all got the book, I know our team, especially in library and academic, we just flew through it in a night, came back. We were all just gaga over Like we couldn't even put into words how much we loved it. And I know I've said this, but I haven't read a book in a long time that I felt like I wanted to reread it and I hadn't even finished it yet. You know, like that's a lot. And um so everyone was talking about it. Everyone was a buzz, and it, it that doesn't happen all of the time. Like where you know I read a lot of books, and I would love to reread all of them, but I made time to sit down and reread it, and it hit me, if not the same, doubly <laughs> the next time I read it. We went to ALA, and on the way we did several buzzes, and I was like singing from the rooftops, like <laughs> everyone needs to know about it. And I have a list on the side of my desk for galleys, and now they just came in, so that's exciting. But we were are gonna get this out, and I think even separately in the office we all came together, and I said, you know, this is like a descendant of Flannery O'Connor to me, and I, like the greatest compliment. And I think that, and then my um. Colleagues were like, that's what I said, you know, and so we just get this gritty, these gritty characters that we love so much and you're just rooting for them. Um, But I think the way you put their experiences all within this one girl's experience is really great. So anyway, before we get into like the book itself, I just want to say how much we love it here at Harper. I can't tell you how much that means to me. And yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm. I'm thrilled. I'm so delighted to know that these characters are going to make it into the world. You know, it took me a, it took me a long time to, to love them enough and see them hopefully clearly enough to, 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 to create real characters, but also to be real honest about their, their flaws and their failings. You know, Um, I'm not interested in characters who are particularly successful. (laughs) You know, I'm interested in characters who fail. I'm interested in characters who, who, who don't believe they're up to the task. You know, Mrs. Shepard was such a great character to write because I realized that, you know, I had 
in my hands a woman who had reached a point in her life where she felt like all the big decisions had already been made and there was really nothing more for her to give to the world, you know, and she's really a character who's retreated, you know, into her own grief and her own sort of private world, you know, and I love these characters, you know, but I also wanted to see them clearly and I wanted to see the place clearly. Um, you know, I think, I think for some of us, a lot of us actually right now in particular, you know, a real reckoning with who you are and where you're from and who your people are is, is probably very much in order. And I wanted to be true to the place and true to the characters. And I still needed to love them, you know, enough um, to, to tell their stories. And that took me a long time, a lot longer, I think, than I realized it would take. Yeah. And I know we were, we already touched on it, but we're going to go back to time and place yeah you know, like music is such a big thing in the book and mm-hmm. showing you know you can pinpoint where they are with the music that's going on around them but can you talk about like time and place especially in Texas at this time why that was important so I chose 1976 in part because I grew up there and in 1976 I was a girl there you know um and so I was to some degree I was mining some of my own memories um but I also chose it because the the town is at the cusp of sort of the next big oil boom. And, um, and of course, that's going on there now as well. Um, and so we're seeing the, the kind of cycle repeat itself. Uh, so I was I was interested in the, the kind of the kind of culture of violence that accompanies a one economy town and in particular an oil town, um, which is to say that, you know, during the oil boom, um, the towns, the, the population swells, people come in from all over the country. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of men come in to get work, you know, to make, uh, to make easy money in the oil patch. And the effect of that on the town is, you know, um, the price of housing soars. Um, there's a steep increase in violence, and in particular, violence against women and girls. And so um, I chose that time because it was familiar to me. That was actually the first reason I chose it was because it was familiar to me and I felt like I could write it. But I also chose it because it felt, you know, distant enough that I could write about it without sort of contending with what's going on there now. Um, And that included also, you know, some interest in the the kind of... um, the kind of environmental devastation that accompanies, um, you know, uh, oil field work. So, and the petroleum industry. And so, um, you know, the truth is, were it not for oil, Odessa would still be a a little stop on the railroad. You know, I mean, oil is the thing that makes that part of the world what it is. Um, And it's been a, you know, it's been an environmental disaster from the (laughs) get-go. So a sort of slow moving environmental disaster. So, and the same is, uh, and I think the same is true for kind of the, the social ills that plague a town like that. So, and at the same time, you know, it's a town filled with people who are living their lives and trying to earn a living and trying to do what everyone does, you know, which is the best they can. So, um, so it was, a. Uh, it was complicated for me to try to write about my hometown in a way that was honest and true and also respectful of, uh, you know, the, the people who, who live there and try to raise their families there. And then of course there's the element also of racism, right. Which has been, you know, um, which is endemic to that part of the world now. And we're seeing that play out even now. I mean, Odessa is, you know, a couple of hundred miles away from the border, you know? So, um, 
the ugliness continues apace, I guess. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I have written down like the oil fields and you have this great um, imagery of like taking all these resources and like sucking the life out of all of Texas that there are all of the land. And so you kind of have this juxtaposition with all the women who are kind of being their lives being sucked out of them too by these people around them um anyway I just I wrote that down so that's yeah. great that you and yet they persist <laughs> you know I mean that's it right is that you know people you know people I I mean I think part of what what I'm really interested in in this book is the idea of of a group of people who don't believe that they can really do much to affect change in their own world. And in fact, they can, you know, um, I'm, I'm really interested in people stepping up and being heroes in spite of all evidence to the contrary, you know, um, people who don't believe that they have anything to, to contribute to the conversation, you know, um, and, uh, and how that's just sort of patently false, but it also requires a fair amount of reckoning with who you are and where you're from. Um, and, and a kind of honest look at the at the foibles and failings of, of your culture and, and the place you grew up in and, you know, the place you find yourself now, I guess. One of the things that we had wanted to talk about was I keep, you know, harping upon the fact that this book is so female-driven and female-centric and writing women into a narrative in which they've typically been excluded. At the same time, you create a few really powerful, sympathetic uh, male characters. And, you know, one small character is John Ledbetter, who works on the oil fields and witnesses an accident. Um, It's a small moment, but an incredibly powerful one. And then in a more primary way, there's Glory's Uncle Victor, And, of course, Jesse Belden, who is back from the war and is kind of hiding out in Odessa, doesn't have a car. Cars are obviously so important in Texas culture, and uh, and it is sort of both a a literal and metaphorical way in which he's stuck. Um, And he befriends Deborah Ann. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that connection and about Jesse as a character especially with the shadow of the Vietnam War looming. Yeah. Yeah. Jesse was a great character. You know, he's a, he's a young man who's come back from the war um, with a a pretty serious injury. He's lost the hearing in one ear and uh, you know, he returned to his home in Eastern Kentucky to discover there was no work, you know? Um, And as a consequence, he made his way to Odessa um, on the word of a cousin who had found work in the oil fields. I mean, that's a real common story too, you know, um, when there's an oil boom in that part of the world, people come in from everywhere. And, uh, and a lot of them are young men who, you know, come in because there's nothing for them in their hometown in Eastern Tennessee or, you know, rural New Jersey or wherever, you know. And, uh, and so um, I love this character, you know, who had lost his truck and, and literally sort of finds himself stuck, you know, in the neighborhood, um, sort of living in this sort of abandoned, you know, um, flood canal, you know, behind everyone's houses. Um, and I was really interested in a couple of things. I was interested in, in the way that, um, that people can disappear in plain sight, that he could be right there in the neighborhood. And the only person who would see him or pay attention to him would be Deborah Ann, um, who's another character that no one's really paying much attention to in this book, you know, um, she's like the other stray cat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, I mean, in fact, I even put a stray cat in the book, you know, who I kind of fell in love with. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I was really interested in how one becomes stuck in a place and, and how for, for people who are already really struggling, you know, that, that tiny little thing, losing his truck in his case, you know, um, can be just the thing that sort of, you know, sends them into an absolute tailspin. And I loved him. He, I actually, he, I mean, about the men and the, and the points of view in the book, one of the things that happened in this book is that I, I wrote the male points of view out. Um, and the good news is I got some lovely short stories out of it. And it also gave me a real understanding of their character. But initially, when I began writing this book, I, I, I really struggled with how to tell a story set in the oil patch in the 1970s that didn't include male points of view. Um, and part of that is because the oil industry is so male dominated, even now, even today, but particularly um, the, the sort of blue collar work of the oil patch. You know, um, you don't see a lot of women you know, working as roughnecks, even today. And back then they were very, very rare, you know? And so I really struggled with how to tell this story without having the men in there. And, um, and Jesse was one of those characters who actually had a chapter from his point of view. And, and I wrote it out, you know, um, and I think it helped me to see his character. And I absolutely think it was the right thing to do to, to make this, to give this book over to the women and girls completely. I think they deserved it. Um, and we don't, I feel like we don't see a whole lot of literature from West Texas and the literature that we do see tends to be really focused on the stories of men and boys. So it was important to me to kind of get there. I mean, I, to be fair, I came along grudgingly um, in some cases, you know, um, Emily, you were, you were really helpful <laughs> and, and my agent was really helpful with that as well, helping me to kind of navigate that terrain. Uh, Beth, yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit to that point about your experiences with work uh, growing up. Um, I know that you have had a vast number of jobs um, over the course of your life. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about working in Odessa when you were young. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have. You know, I'm the, I'm the first member of my family to graduate from university. Um, and, uh, I got my first job at the mall when I was 15. Um, my first job actually was waiting tables, um, out at the mall and, um, and waiting tables has actually been a, a, a way for me to make a living, um, through much of my adult life. Um, I put myself through a degree waiting tables. I picked up waiting tables when I moved to Los Angeles. Um, and you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say about it except that just like most people, I mean, um, you know, I've always been just trying to earn a living. Um, and so in, in, in Odessa, you know, um, waiting tables was one of the, the few jobs you could get, you know, uh, if you were, if you were a woman at that time, um, you know, and, and hadn't gone to college, which I had not yet. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I worked as a waitress. Um, I spent a summer painting silos and cooling towers at the petrochemical plant in my hometown, which was, difficult and terrifying work because it turns out I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> so, How high are you up there? Um, we were about, we had to climb up about 10 or 15 stories. 
So we, we climbed, it was a little, it was a summer work crew and I won't go into too many details about it, but, but the, the long and the short of it is I was, I was hired on a summer work crew of local kids who were in real danger of getting into trouble. (laughs) And it was a paid gig, but it was also very much to like, you know, to sort of basically like put us to work and keep us busy. Um, and, and kind of my, actually my, my sort of little secret about all of this is that after a few weeks, I would, I would sneak a book up with me and, um, and I would paint as hard as I could, as quickly as I could for the entire morning. And then I would try to find a, a little, a little place where I could sit with my back up against one of the, one of the silos. And I would just quietly read until I heard the whistle blow. So, so I kind of cheated them out of my salary, I guess. (laughs) And it was, uh, it was, it was an interesting, it was an interesting thing to do. So, um, it was hard work, you know, and, 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 and in retrospect, probably somewhat dangerous, you know, um, we would, we were always listening for the the whistle to blow to tell us that there'd been an accident. You know, we were always mindful of the wind picking up and, you know, and having to sort of get out of there quickly. I learned a lot. I had a lot more respect for the work that my old man did when I came out of that summer. I'll tell you that. Okay. It's Lainey. So Hi. what I wanted to talk about a little bit, and we've, we've touched a bit on like all of the women's experiences, and I, I pointed out that Mary Rose's chapters are the only ones written in first person. Um, and she finds Glory comes to her house. So it's very much her story telling this and then also, of course, Glory's. But, um, you know, there's a great way that you you tell the story. There's no quotation marks. There's different points of view and different um, p- persons, second, first, and whatnot. So I know that you have these very cool characters. One that really stands out to me is Suzanne because it's, you know, I, I guess on the surface you think like she does, she's just in her own world, but she has these experiences as well. She's got her own, you know, rose-tinted glasses on some of them, but she is she is going through the same thing, teaching her kid how to to fight in this world that really hasn't fought for her. But how do you, how did you write about like the universal female experience using all of these different women's experiences? Well, I'll tell you, I didn't think of it as the universal female experience. What I thought was, um, you know, what I, what I tried to do and what I always try to do always when I'm writing is just stay super, super intensely focused on that character in that moment. You know, I read out loud a lot. Um, so all of my decisions about point of view were were made generally by just reading the work aloud and trying to figure it out. You know what what I, I make most of my it's embarrassing to admit, but I make most of my narrative decisions based on what sounds right to me, what sounds right to my ear. So, for example, while I really admire writers who hole up in the corner of a coffee house to write their fiction. I, I write alone in my bedroom in a corner with the door closed <laughs> because I'm constantly reading aloud. And so I made most of my decisions based on what sounded to me um, to be the the right point of view. Suzanne's a great character and she, it took me a long time to love her. Um, of all my characters, she's probably the one I felt that I had the least in common with. Um, she's a, a woman who has made her mind up 
that she's going to toe the line, you know, that she's a successful woman who runs her own business, um, you know, who's who's working along with her husband to kind of scratch and claw their way into the middle class. You know, she comes from a, a pretty rough background, a, a pretty rough childhood of her own. And and I thought a lot about, you know, and I think you see this a lot, you know, in in women um everywhere, you know, who see their lives, their daily lives as a kind of constant sort of proving ground to kind of prove that they're not the people that they came from, that they're somehow better than their families, that they've somehow um, sort of, uh, you know, that they've kind of stepped out of the the expectation. Suzanne's family is, you know, um, I mean, she comes from a family, and I and I don't use this word lightly. She comes from a family of grifters, you know, a family of people who follow the oil, you know, booms from town to town, and you know, rack up a little debt and then leave town in a hurry, you know. Um, and uh, she's very much a character who who's going to set things right for herself. There's a great, there's a line that I really love in her chapter where she says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but she basically says, you know, a woman could spend her whole life, right, proving herself to her friends and neighbors. And, and so I, I, you know, I thought about that a lot as I was writing her. So, yeah. Yeah. They, I think a lot of great, um, like, I guess a great setting also, but also the characters come alive when they tell these folk tales or the different stories of things going on or stories they've been told growing up. I have like this one line from <laughs> this one that Jenny is, uh, has been told. Um, and it says, if the devil comes knocking on your front door in the middle of the night, she liked to say, chances are you flirted with him at the dance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think about it. I love that one. Yeah, so these folk tales are are really great combined with all of the different characters because you you get to see where they came from as well. And so I don't I just wondered if like they these are reiterations of what you've been told or just things in your past and how you came up with them. Yeah, the, the stories were based on stories. They were like stories I had been told, but they're they're very much my own invention and I loved them. I loved writing those. Um and, and part of it is because, you know, I come from a place where, where storytelling is, is how we sort of make it through the, the day, you know, um, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I don't, for example, when I started doing research on my hometown and, and on my own family, you know, and, uh, you know, I didn't find a lot of written records. There, there aren't a lot, you know, um, I mean, I'm sure there were families from that part of the world that kept copious records, but mine wasn't among them. And I don't think that's an uncommon story for you know, um, for working class, um, people, you know, um, so for me, you know, we grew up hearing these stories, um, but, but, but these stories were very much my own invention and they're so brutally, you know, um, unkind, right? I mean, there's a kind of, there's kind of a, a, a mentality in that part of the world, you know, of, you know, get them before they get you, right? Um, this is Emily again. I guess I would say the other thing about these stories and sayings that you incorporate in is that it allows you to add some humor um, into a narrative that deals with very serious topics. And there's other moments of humor, um, you know, cranky Mrs. Shepard dealing with the annoying Deborah Ann from across the street 
trying to get into her house, you know, just not waiting on the porch and Mrs. Shepard won't let her in. You know, there's great um, humor that comes out of those moments. But I also think the kind of sharpness and Texasness of some of these, uh, you know, idioms and sayings uh, really helps to give it both texture and, you know, balances some of the darker themes that you're working with at the same time, reinforcing those themes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I was really relieved. The humor was a real relief to me, you know, because it's it was a hard, I'm not going to lie, this was a hard book to write, you know, um, and, and, uh, and, and those moments, I mean, of course, they happened absolutely organically, you know, and in, in every case, I mean, I, and, and I, I suppose, I, I don't know, I wonder if this is true for other writers as well. I've talked to some friends, and it, I think it may be, but you know, for me, always, I'm just kind of trying to be as deep in the point of view and as deep in the voice as possible. Um, and, 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 and sort of let things happen as they, as they will. Um, I, I ask myself always a series of what if questions and Emily, I was so, I was so gratified at the introduction when you talked about the plot, you know, and how, and how things actually happen, because the truth is I really struggle with plot, you know, um, I feel like voice and character I've kind of got, you know, I can kind of get deep into voice and character. Character, but, but plot actually making things happen is, is is very difficult for me, and it was a real struggle in this book. In fact, I mean, for the last couple of years that I was writing the book, I had a three by five note card on the wall above my desk, and it said in big block letters in black sharpie, "What happens next?" <laughs> oh, that's great! Yeah, so you know, in all of these cases, the humor really you know arose out of the voices and the and the characters themselves. And um, but I, I but I'm not going to lie, I was so relieved when it happened when when those moments of humor you know, cropped up. They, for one thing, they sounded, they seemed real to me. They are real to me. Um, yes. you know, I think that dark humor is, uh, is a real lifesaver, you know, um, it is for me, that's for sure, you know, and, uh, yeah, I was relieved to see them, but they weren't intentional. And, uh, and uh, well, and the truth is, is I, I, I wonder how much of anything I do on the page is intentional, honestly, I, you know, as much as anything else, I've, my, my sort of general MO is to go into a room, close the door and try to listen to the voices in my head, which sounds crazy, <laughs> but seems to work. So I guess it worked for this one. And we're all the luckier for it. Absolutely. <laughs> I wonder, going back to the stories question, um, you've told me about growing up in a town and a region um, without a ton of access to bookstores and that libraries were a big part of your childhood and that they're a big part of your adult life. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the role that they've played. Oh man, yeah, they saved my life. You know, I have a I have a kind of a an ongoing joke with my friends that if it weren't for libraries and college radio, I'd be dead now. <laughs> That's a, probably a little bit of an overstatement, but um, no, I mean the the best thing that ever happened to me, and and one of the things in the book that's absolutely true is the uh, the presence of that bookmobile in the parking lot just uh, just down the road from where Deborah Ann Pierce lives. Um, you know, I was an avid reader. I was a kid who read for escape. I didn't read great literature as a kid. You know, I read, I read, you know, whatever I could get my hands on and I read voraciously. 
Um, I was one of the, before the bookmobile showed up in my neighborhood, you know, I was one of those kids who had to beg a ride from my parents to go downtown. And uh, we would go downtown to the one library downtown. And uh, I would check out as many books as I could. I'd take them all home. I'd read them all in like three days, but it would be another week or so before anyone could take me back to the library. So I would just read the books over and over and over again. And then, uh, and then the bookmobile, this big trailer showed up, you know, um, in a parking lot just up the way from where I lived. So I was able to ride my bike over there suddenly and get as many books as I wanted and as often as I wanted. Um, and it was a real lifesaver. When I was in college, I, I was really, really on the fence um, between uh, becoming a forest ranger and <laughs> and uh, becoming a librarian. So, and ultimately, I opted for it to become an English major. Um, but uh, and I did not become a librarian. But I thought about it. So it seemed to me to be the greatest job one could choose maybe next to being a forest ranger. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So I think to round us out, maybe one of the the most important things I think we have to talk about um, and going back to to race because Uh Glory – um, is Hispanic. And so she, she's American, but she has this culture as well. And her mother, um, is an immigrant. And so I think, you know, it would be terrible to go through this as anyone. Um, but adding that other element of these people in town, maybe not trusting her or not, or kind of putting her to the side. Um, and she's in a way losing her culture, because she is not allowed to speak um, Spanish at home. She's not, you know, everyone in town doesn't really care for her to speak Spanish Mm -hmm. either. So what made it important to have that element in the story? Yeah. I mean, I I knew I couldn't write the book without it, honestly. You know, I mean, it's such a big part of of that whole part of the country. And, you know, I couldn't ignore it. And I I thought it would be... um, dishonest to do so. Um, and, and I really went back and forth on it, whether or not, you know, um, to, to make her, you know, to make her white, you know, to make her, to make her, you know, Gloria, you know, Smith or whatever, instead of Gloria Ramirez, you know, was a, was a decision for me in part because I was very nervous about my ability and my right to do so honestly. And, um, and at the same time, I, I just, I knew I couldn't write this book set in West Texas without talking about the, the terrible lingering history of racism, um, you know, of, uh, of colonialism, you know, and, uh, you know, I, 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 it didn't seem, it didn't seem right to me to write the book without, without, trying to at least take an honest look at that. And, and, and I'd be lying if I said that, that the events of the past few years didn't really sort of underscore the importance of that for me, you know, um, you know, in the past few years, I've, I've heard a few times as we all have, you know, um, sentences like, you know, this is not who we are, right. When something terrible happens, when we start throwing, you know, children in cages at the South border, you know, you you hear, you know, this is not who we are. And I think for some of us, you know, the answer to that is actually, this is exactly who we are, you know, or conversely, you know, I've heard we're better than this. And, and for some of us that, you know, the, the response to that is actually, we're not better than this, but we could be, right? You know, we could be, and by we, in this case, I mean, white people, you know, we could be so much better than this, but to do that, we really have to reckon with who we are and who our people are and who our ancestors are or were, 
you know, and, um, and so I didn't want to, I didn't want to look away from that. You know, I didn't want to tell a story set in the South, you know, that, that didn't honestly reckon or try to, you know, I don't know, obviously you never know if you've done this successfully, right. But didn't try to honestly reckon with the real story of that place, you know, and, um, and that, and, and that was hard because it also meant for me that I had to really reckon with the failings of my main characters as well. And their and their sort of lingering um, inability, right, to see to see what's happened to Gloria Ramirez as um, Glory, you know, as uh, the crime that it really is, right? And and I and I've had occasion more than once to read a novel or a short story set in the South, you know, and by a white author, you know, and 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 marvel that that this person was able to tell this entire story. <laughs> No, without really like grappling with, you know, racism. I mean, that's a, that's a luxury and I'm using air quotes. Um, You can't see me, but I'm using air quotes. That's a luxury that, that writers of color don't have, you know, I mean, when I am, you know, when I teach students and, and, you know, they, you know, we, we, um, I was just at a workshop in Sewanee teaching high schoolers and we were talking about Tiana Clark's amazing book of poetry. I can't talk about the trees without the blood. And one of my, and these students are young and they're from all over the place. And one of my, you know, young students said, you know, everything, every, every poem in here is about race, you know? And I said, well, yeah, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that, that, that is true. Why do you think that is, you know, but somehow I think so often, um, white writers, you know, writers of the South think that they can tell the story without telling the story. And I, I knew I couldn't do that. So um, yeah, and, and I hope I did okay. Them. <laughs> but I'll be honest with you too. I also had Emily there, you know, working with me and occasionally pointing out, you know, um, bits of bits of language that you know that were, I wouldn't say dismissive, but you know, sort of where I, the the there was a kind of sense of the writer sort of observing without being a part of. I guess does that make sense in a right, way that yeah. felt. Um, disingenuous or, you know, exploitive or whatever. So, you know, I was always kind of checking myself and hoping I got it right, you know, and I guess time will tell. I, I, I will tell you of all the things I worry about in this book, and there are plenty, I, I think probably the one thing I worry about more than anything else is whether or not I got Glory and her family right. That was so wonderful. We really appreciate you taking time to sit down with us. Thank you, Emily, for coming on and talking about your experience with the book as well. Librarians, if you, I urge you to look on Edelweiss and Galley and try to download an eGalley or ask for a galley from us because this is one that you're going to want to know about. And we're so excited to be able to present it to the world. So thank you, um, Beth. And I think we'll sign off. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Bye, everyone.